Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry. It's the 17th of May, 2019, and this is segment two of my ongoing discussion of the association of obesity and the hepatocellular carcinoma. So let's get started. To recap very briefly, HCC is the dominant form of primary liver carcinoma that has an acronym all of its own. It's called PLC. Anyways, hepatocellular carcinoma constitutes about 85 to 90% of all the primary liver cancer. Obesity is the primary risk factor, along with type 2 diabetes, hepatitis B and C uh, infection, aflatoxins, alcohol, tobacco, and uh, an array of hepatotoxic ingestion of illicit drugs or just overall drug abuse. Furthermore, obesity is an independent HCC risk factor in patients with alcoholic cirrhosis and something called cryptogenic cirrhosis, which may or may not be linked to alcohol. Fatty liver responds to weight reduction via exercise and diet. And uh, with, when you don't reduce in obesity uh, over time, you generate non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. As we mentioned, that progresses to steatohepatitis or NASH, which basically means you have an inflammation, and that can progress to liver fibrogenesis, then liver fibrosis, cirrhosis, liver failure, and HCC. This is all recapping from last time. Obesity and metabolic disorders are characterized with insulin resistance, so that's probably associated. <laughs> Results, of course, in elevated plasma concentrations of insulin and insulin-like growth factor one. And those, because they are circulating endocrine hormones, can have uh, multiple plenary effects on bioenergetics and biofuel utilization in muscle cells and in adipose tissue uh, and uh, overall level of concentration in the blood, which will all affect the amount of free glucose. And the amount of free glucose can directly associate with glycosylation of serum proteins, which itself has been linked to uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Anyways, it's all results on the things we've been talking about in secretion of cytokines, by, and also adipokines from the adipose tissue. And uh, you get cytokines or pro-inflammatory cytokines from inflammatory cells from the immune system. And they can include, when you're talking about the liver, resident liver macrophages uh, or Kupfer cells. Adipocytes become hypertrophic initially, and that's due to the accumulation of excess lipids. And this could be determined by a scan. You can pick this up if you go and get an MRI, for example, of the liver. Hypertrophic adipocytes secrete free fatty acids, and together with immune cells, will then release pro-inflammatory cytokines, which ones, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha is one, and interleukin-6. And of course, there are many others that I mentioned last time. Uh, and also, there are certain um, adipose-associated hormone fluctuations that occur in a somewhat complex uh, uh, dynamic, which I'm going to try to explain to you in a moment here. So what I'm saying is that free fatty acids, free fatty acids in the serum can activate immune cells and induce 
if they're associated with the hepato, uh, uh, liver, hepatocellular death. So that means immune cells associated with the liver, like Kupfer cells. So obesity uh, generates excessive free fatty acid. Free, excessive free fatty acid's effect on adipose tissue itself will alter the levels of adiponectin secretion, tends to, tends to decrease the amount of adiponectin secretion. Now, adiponectin normally will induce AMP kinase, and uh, AMP kinase becomes phosphorylated, so you have phosphoamp kinase, which then phosphorylates a protein called J and K, or the Janus kinase, which then is called PGNK because it's phosphorylated. And that can induce caspase 3. And of course, caspase 3 will lead us down the paradigmatic pathway for apoptosis, mitochondrial associated apoptosis. If you have apoptosis of hepatocellular carcinoma cells, census strictu, then that, of course, will block further hepatocarcinogenesis. So that's adiponectin working in the positive mode. But there's a complication here. Adiponectin actually can feedback regulate the system, but it becomes dysregulated in obese subjects. And that's because the adiponectin receptor levels are also altered in obesity. Now, I'll describe this more in a moment, but there was a paper published in Anti-Cancer Research. I guess I'll say it right now to get it out of the way. Uh, Anti-Cancer Research published in 2016. Uh, it was volume 10, page uh, 5307 and ongoing. Uh, that was October 2016. And basically, it reported, uh, looking at human studies, that higher adiponectin, higher circulating adiponectin, consistently higher levels, meant less survival at late stage hepatocellular carcinoma. <laughs> That's believed to be part of a feedback regulation where the adiponectin receptors have been endocytosed, so you have less adiponectin signaling because of the ultra-high levels of adiponectin being generated um, directly from the adipocytes. So that is, unfortunately, what happens is that during disease progression, the etiology changes and what you might normally observe as being um, positive for survival at early stages of the disease become the exact opposite later stages of the disease. And that's usually because of resistance to uh, the hormone or the circulating metabolite, whatever it happens to be. Okay, so what happens again with obesity is you get free fatty acids, can generate the adipocyte uh, pathway I just mentioned you, the AMP kinase, Finally, apoptosis, and if the apoptosis is associated with hepatocellular carcinoma cells, that's a good thing. But free fatty acids directly on hepatocytes will also cause endoplasmic reticulum stress, the protein folding response stress in the ER, and generate more reactive oxygen with the ER and associated mitochondria, which will cause cell death. And all of that is going to trigger Kupfer cells generating more interleukin-6 and more tumor necrosis factor alpha, which will then bind back to the receptor in the rest in the hepatocyte, leaving the cup for cell going back to the hepatocyte. And that'll trigger then a STAT3 pathway. TNF-alpha uh, will go through its TNF-alpha receptor uh, at the hepatocyte membrane, plasma membrane. And that will induce transcription using STAT3 as a transcriptional activator of more interleukin-6 receptor. 
So more interleukin-6 receptor means more interleukin-6 being received by the hepatocyte, which means you get an increase in more inflammation. That can trigger from the hepatocyte now reactive oxygen and cell death, but it also triggers DNA damage, which means more oncogenic mutations, which in the liver is really a bad thing, of course, if it's happening in situ, that can lead to hepatocarcinogenesis. So you see, it's a very complex pattern here, but the fatty increase in free fatty acids, which is the result of obesity, sensu stricto, uh, is definitely a negative indicator and therefore will enhance disease progression. Uh, and that's notwithstanding the whole fibrogenesis and fibrosis story we were talking about before. And that had to do with direct high levels of triacylglycerol and the hepatocyte. We talked about that already. Uh, and that also includes the hypertrophy of the, of the hepatocytes. So TNF-alpha plays a major role in insulin resistance that's throughout the body. And elevated TNF uh, is always detected in obese subjects and also in animal models. If you have a loss of tumor necrosis factor or its receptor, and there's two different receptors, that actually improves insulin sensitivity and tends to decrease the uh, paradigmatic shift from NAFLD to NASH to HCC going through that cirrhosis pathway we talked about before via a fibrogenesis, fibrosis um, interdictum. Okay, so that's all. I know it's very complicated. I realize that, but um, that's the way these diseases work. You have to th talk about the direct time and place where you're analyzing metabolites, which is why we need to talk about these being event ontologies and not substance ontologies. Where is the event occurring? How the uh, substances uh, concentration change over time and how the receptors, which the substances bind to, change over time. And whether or not that signaling then goes south or that signaling goes south, that can then enhance the negative effect and can lead ultimately to hepatocellular carcinoma. So I'm sure that, I'm sure that, that is not uh, surprising to oncologists and to many of you uh, uh, docs out there. You know that there's a stable concentration of hormones in the blood and therefore binding to receptors in the periphery uh, and even the CNS, if some of them do, and that that is a tightly controlled system. And when you get out of that range, when you leave that range and you get um, to the aperon where there is no longer any boundary or border uh, to the concentration of either the metabolite, the hormone, or the receptor alterations, that's when you lead to disease. And again, diseases usually happen in two uh, global patterns. One is degeneration and the other is proliferation. Always remember that. And all this signaling can lead one or the other, but ultimately it can lead from degeneration to uh, uh, proliferation and then oncogenesis. And even oncogenesis can lead to massive cell death, but nevertheless enhance because of metastasis, more cancer throughout the body. So here's again, uh, basic uh, understanding of adiponectin, just so you know, normally when adiponectin is working correctly, it increases fatty acid oxidation uh, and decreases triacylglycerol. And because of that, uh, you're going to increase insulin sensitivity and you're going to decrease vascular and hepatic inflammation. But again, high levels of circulating adiponectin override all of that and reverse that entire trend. So more key points, <laughs> several specific intracellular Pro-inflammatory signaling pathways, including nuclear factor, that is NF-kappa B, 
junk, which we talked about, the, the, the Janus kinase, activating protein 1 or the AP1, and STAT3, which we've already covered, what we talked about in the hepatocyte, have emerged as potential targets for the cytokine and kibokine-mediated HCC. So again, uh, that, that you have to think about what's happening in the serum as a biomarker or as a bioactive compound, for example, as a cytokine. Then you have to think about what's happening in the target cell where those uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines are either generated in binder receptors or, or are generated um, uh, in some other tissue and then ultimately signal there. Remember last time we talked about senescence-associated secretory pathways. So even senescence, which is not programmed cell death from the apoptotic pathway, which is basically cellular aging and finally cellular degradation and death, even that can signal long distance and generate pro-inflammatory cytokines. So even senescence itself, which normally you think when cells are dying, when the whole system is dying, you're not going to get as much proliferation. It can signal to proliferate um, tangentially or even long distance. Uh, so that is another thing that we you know, has only been discovered by studying aging. Anyway, another major signaling pathway involved in hepatosteatosis, right? It's the NASH system, and then ultimately to hepato, uh, carcinogenesis is the AMP kinase TORC1 pathway. Uh, again, we talked about this in many different authentic biochemistries and certainly uh, many, many more Vera Med lectures over the year, now the two years almost. Inhibition of AMP kinase 1 and the activation of TORC1, because those are working as a, think of them as like a teeter-totter. When AMP kinase 1 goes up, TORC1 goes down. When TORC1 goes up, AMP kinase goes down. And this is regulated actually by bioenergetics, okay? Again, which I talked about before. Well, anyways, when you activate TORC1, it results in inhibition of autophagy, which was recently found to be the major pathway of the removal of lipid droplets. That would be the accumulation of triacylglycerol that you get the in the hepatocyte. <clears throat> and that likely is a, a tumor suppressive uh, effect. It also may control autoinflammatory activities in the liver. So once you remove that pathway, um, then you run into all kinds of problems, right? And so that's, that's, the, that's the issue you got. If you have torque-1 buildup because of too much excessive fatty acid, you're going to inhibit autophagy. If you inhibit autophagy, you're going to decrease the amount of lipid droplet utilization. And when that happens, you may suppress the increase in reactive oxygen. But overall, you're building up free fatty acids, which can override the, for example, beta oxidation pathway or even the um, oxidative phosphorylation pathway. You look, you know, the, the, the reoxidation of NADH generated from the TCA cycle which is also functioning in these cells, right? The whole, the whole glycolysis, the pyruvate, to acetyl-CoA and OAA and on through the TCA cycle, further increasing reactive oxygen, further uh, applying a negative effect on um, the hepatocellular carcinoma paradigm. All right. Now, DNA damage and oncogenic mutations remain relatively underexplored in the obesity-associated tumorigenesis. Um, people have looked at this in animal models, but we have not been able to get a lot of data yet on humans. Obviously, we don't go around doing liver biopsies <coughs> on uh, uh, living subjects. And often when people die from liver cancer or liver damage, um, the liver is not, maybe some liver sections are, are taken, but often that tissue is not retained. So post-mortem studies, which are already inherently very difficult in, the, in liver, liver systems, um, are just underutilized. Uh, there are several murine models, and they've been well-developed, and we do understand a lot about how obesity does induce 
overall carcinogenesis, not just HCC. But again, these are animal models, and I caution, uh, I always caution about animal models because you, you, you have to remember <laughs> that animal models are animal models. Uh, and when we study humans, often there is much more complicated. Uh, and part of that is just the agency of the human. That is their diet, their behavior, their lifestyle has a huge impact. Animals don't have that overriding agency where they make decisions and those decisions can lead to either a healthy lifestyle or to a non-healthy lifestyle. And that includes things like the utilization, of course, alcohol, which is always bad, tobacco, which is always bad, and illicit drugs, which is always bad. So you get the idea. All right. So there's a lot of things to discuss with hormonal regulation here, but glucagon and epinephrine, both of those are going to signal um, in the liver the increase in adenylate cyclase, which is going to increase the amount of cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP, of course, will induce protein kinase A. Protein kinase A will cause uh, multiple enzymes to be phosphorylated. But what's the upshot of that? It will increase the amount of glycogenolysis, so gl glycogen breakdown in the liver. It will increase the amount of gluconeogenesis because it's signaling you need more glucose. It's going to decrease that phosphorylation cascade from cyclic AMP to better protein kinase A. It's going to diminish the enzymes, the rate-limiting enzymes of glycolysis. It's actually also going to decrease the rate-limiting enzymes, particularly the acetylcholine carboxylase um, for lipogenesis. That includes both fatty acid synthesis and cholesterol genesis. So you get that. Those hormones do regulate. Those global hormones regulate that. Now, what about environmental effects? Okay, so an increase in muscular work or an increase in hypoxia, which go hand in hand, can also downstream not only affect muscle but liver. Because if you deplete the level of ATP, you increase the level of AMP. Whenever you increase the level of AMP, thinking about the, um, the ratios of ATP to ADP, and ATP plus ADP over uh, ADP plus ATP plus AMP, whenever you increase the amount of uh, adenosine monophosphate, you turn on the AMP kinase, which is a different kinase, as you know. That also, of course, induces phosphorylation, but now check this out. That enhances the enzymes in glycolysis activity and enhances fatty acid oxidation. While AMP kinase-mediated phosphorylation shuts down gluconeogenesis, protein synthesis, that would be the mTORC pathway we just mentioned, lipogenesis, of course, and lipogenesis, both fatty acids and cholesterol. So you get that. So AMP kinase uh, turning on is actually a good thing. So hypoxia, which, is, which can trigger a lot of uh, negative phenomena, for example, a CNS, can actually be a good thing when it's signaling from the muscle. You see, you see how complicated this is? Now, what about insulin? When insulin binds to its receptor, it's going to uh, negatively impact the 4K transcription factor. And normally that would turn on the IRE, or insulin response element, and that would decrease gluconeogenesis and decrease beta oxidation. Okay. So when insulin binds to that, it shuts that whole system down. Okay. Uh, because you don't need more glucose. And the level of fatty acid oxidation is also decreased by the system. Now, it also, insulin also positively activates the sterile response element binding protein 1C. It binds to the ster sterile response element, which is, of course, a cystic element 
on lipogenic genes, DNA level, and that increases lipogenesis. So insulin increases lipogenesis while it decreases hepatic fatty acid oxidation. Glucose at the same time, which is also on high circulation during insulin secretion, so insulin high, glucose high together, that's going to uh, activate the CHREBP, okay? Now, that's going to be, again, a carbohydrate response element binding protein, it's CH stands for. It's going to bind to the carbohydrate response element, or CAR-RE, which is, again, DNA, uh, promoter region, and that's going to turn on lipogenic enzymes, and you're going to get more lipogenesis. So you turn on lipogenesis via the SREBP and the CHREBP. That's transcriptional activation, and that's going to be induced uh, both by insulin and by glucose, respectively. All right. So you get the idea of how complicated this is with just the hormones. Now, what about free fatty acids? Free fatty acids will positively turn on the PPAR alpha. That's peroxyproliferator uh, alpha receptor uh, 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 alpha the alpha, alpha form, uh, activated receptor, the PPAR alpha, uh, and that then will bind to the PPRE for mitochondrial Fox genes, the PPRE for the peroxisomal Fox genes, and the PPRE for ketogenesis genes. All of that, fatty acids turning on the PPAR alpha, again, it's a transcription factor mediated event on all those DNA receptors, uh, DNA uh, promoters I just mentioned to you, the PPREs, for mitochondrial genes, peroxisomal genes, and ketogenic genes, which of course are going to be all coming from uh, translation in the cytosol. All of that's going to enhance fatty acid oxidation and increase ketogenesis. So that's a good thing. That's when fatty acids are working normally. But an excess of fatty acids, again, is going to shut all of that down. It's going to shut all of that down. And even during the transition from high levels of beta oxidation to low levels of beta oxidation can also in, in, in induce other problems. And what are those other problems? Well, basically an increase in reactive oxygen either way, right? Because you're generating a lot of NADH and a lot of FADH2 and beta oxidation. And that can ultimately, of course, lead to uh, partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen, which right down that pathway again, uh, steatohepatitis, um, cirrhosis, um, and then ultimately, of course, the uh, cellular carcinoma. All right. There's also a Warburg effect to consider. See, this is deeply in the biochemistry. That a Warburg effect or a Warburg effect is altered metabolism, and it's one of the hallmarks of cancer. It's best known abnormality in cancer cells. It demonstrates an increased glycolysis even in the presence of oxygen. So you get aerobic glycolysis because, you know, glycolysis doesn't require molecular oxygen. However, tumor-related metabolic abnormalities are not limited to an altered balance between glucose fermentation and oxidative phosphorylation. So you also get the whole effect of fatty acids oxidation. And indeed, oncogenes such as P53 and CMYK, that is when they're mutated, P53 and, and CMYK are mutated, are found to be master regulators of metabolism all on their own, which is going to corrupt this whole system further. All right. So basically, cancer cells exhibit high, high rates of glucose uptake and lactic acid production. Lactic acid ends up in the blood. Cancer cells uh, don't consume more oxygen than normal tissue, even under normal oxygen pressures. In fact, sometimes they can become hypoxic, uh, especially in the core of, of the, uh, of the uh, cancer mass, the tumor mass. And we've also observed that cancer cells prefer aerobic glycolysis over oxidative phosphorylation. TCH cycles shut down. 
Um, intermediate metabolism and cancer, we also can talk about lots of other competing and interacting systems. There's been recent progress on the isocitrate dehydrogenase 1, pyruvate kinase muscle form 2, that's PKM2, and the fumarase. So some of those enzymes sound like TCA cycle enzymes, and some of them are actually cytosolic isoforms of those. There's another enzyme called succinate dehydrogenase, which I, I know you all are aware of from the TCA cycle. But there are mutations that could be picked up in those when you have an obese system. And any of those mutations can alter that whole signaling I just talked about. And when you alter signaling, you alter the activity of metabolic enzymes. And altering the activity of metabolic enzymes can increase reactive oxygen, can alter signaling, can get away from things like autophagy, which is generally a good thing, and induce, for example, proliferation and initiate tumors. So that's the real problem that you got here. Um, in fact, um, the, the, the pathways become really complicated because the, you have a change in hypoxia-inducible factor, which is HIF, and that's, in, in fact, involved in mutations and therefore the oncogenicity of succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase, those two TCA enzymes. So hypoxic stress, which is going to turn on the HIF, the hypoxia-inducible factor, is a common phenomenon in tumor tissues. Didn't I just tell you that? And the predominant regulatory factor is, 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 is HIF, and that's in the course of hypoxia response, okay? So under normal oxygen, HIF-1-alpha is degraded rapidly through the von Hippel-Lindau, or VHL-mediated ubiquitination pathway that we're all quite familiar with. And that reaction, the proline residues of HIF-1-alpha, that protein, become hydroxylated first before the uh, HIF-1-alpha is recognized by the VHL system and then it becomes polyubiquitinated and then goes through uh, protein degradation. So the first step is the hydroxylation of the HIF-1-alpha and that's catalyzed by these proline hydroxylases, which are affectionately called PhDs. So PhDs are a family of alpha-ketoglutarate-dependent enzymes. Wow, what about that? Okay, so you need alpha-ketoglutarate to carry out the proline hydroxylation. So during the process of HIF-1-alpha hydroxylation, the substrate, which is alpha-ketoglutarate, is actually oxidized, and that's accompanied with the generation of succinate, of course, as the product. You oxidize alpha-KG, you get succinic acid. So let's just uh, finish here. When you get mutations in succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase, it increases the accumulation of succinate and or fumarate. If the mutations are, um, they inhibit catalysis, which they often do. Both of those metabolites, succinate and fumarate, can inhibit the enzyme activity of the PhDs. That's the proline hydroxylase, right? I just told you about. And that results in reduced degradation of the HIF-1-alpha, because you don't get the ubiquitination pathway, but if you don't get hydroxylation, and that you, then you get increased expression of some specific genes. And some of those specific genes then will can induce, ultimately, hepatocellular carcinoma. So that's the whole problem that you've got here. So again, when you block succinate and fumarate, you block the PhD pathway. The PhD pathway will cause the HIF-1-alpha to be degraded because it's going to bind to all these other proteins and it'll become ubiquitinylated. So the target genes normally that are turned on by HIF-1-alpha are like glycolysis, angiogenesis, self-proliferation. So if you can enhance the amount of HIF-1 degradation, you're not going to get 
enhanced aerobic glycolysis, enhanced angiogenesis, enhanced cell proliferation. And everybody knows all of that is what? Oncogenic, right? That's all oncogenic. So we're going to stop there. Now, I know that that was a lot to hear, but that's what we do in authentic biochemistry. We talk biochemistry. So now you're seeing how the TCA cycle is becoming more and more intimately involved in our what looked to be a rather plain discussion of hepatocellular carcinoma. So I want you to get that in your mind, and I want you to uh, tune in next time. We're going to continue to discuss this, and we're going to move on to talk more about the utilization of fatty acids. We're also going to talk about causation patterns, and that's, of course, is linked to type 2 diabetes. So I'm going to stop right now. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry. This is the 17th of May, 2019, and I'm saying bye for now. <music>